Hey, y'all, I am not trying to be cute about it, but you know the drill. All month, I've been hitting you up for money, uh, and not just money for any old thing, but money to show your support of public radio, which in turn means your support for this show. There's a special link that allows you to give to your local NPR station or any local NPR station while telling them that we sent you there. It would mean a lot to me if you did just that. If you go to donate.npr.org Sam, you can find your local station and give. Whatever you want to give, you can give. Uh, if you don't, I'll tell Aunt Betty. And you don't want that. You really don't want that. Donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thank you. Hey, y'all. This is It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And as we come up on the holiday weekend, today, a nice conversation to get you through your travels. We're talking with Golden Globe-nominated actress Rachel Brosnahan. So you might know Rachel from House of Cards. On that show, she played an escort who got in a little too deep with a political staffer. That role was a supporting role. But in her new show, Rachel is the star. The show's on Amazon. It's called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Rachel plays Midge Maisel, who was a 1950s housewife who, through a series of events, falls into a career doing stand-up comedy in New York City. And the show isn't only about women. It was created by a woman. It's the brainchild of Amy Sherman Palladino. She made Gilmore Girls. I talked with Rachel last week after she had just gotten some great news uh, that she is up for a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a TV Comedy for her work on Mrs. Maisel. We talked about that. We talked about what the show says about women. We talked about how this show fits into the Me Too movement and how Rachel got her part in this show despite trying out for the role with the flu. It's a lot more on this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do, too. Let's get to it. Me and Rachel Brosnahan. I was in D.C. Rachel was in New York. Enjoy. I think you're owed a, a happy early birthday. Oh, thanks. Yeah, when's your birthday? Well, not not December. <laughs> uh, my birthday is not when the internet says it is. <laughs> Stop it. Are you it's serious? History. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? Well, I didn't do it. it somebody <laughs> Who did like, it then? I literally do not know is the thing. Somebody <laughs> fully made up my birthday. Stop it. Like, I, I, it, And it, the craziest thing is it became truer than the truth so quickly. <laughs> it was like somebody had put that my birthday was April 2nd. And, huh. and I didn't know that until more than one person kept kind of wishing me happy birthday. And I was like, oh. And I, and I thought people were making a joke or something. I didn't understand. Yeah. And then people kept referring to my astrological sign. And I was like, <laughs> what? That's... And, and then I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. So I was like, this is insane. Like, And I went in and tried to change it. And it wouldn't let me change it. it kept on Wikipedia or what? On Wikipedia. Or, it or wouldn't something. let you change it. No. And so then I went on Twitter and made up a new birthday for myself just to see if it would take. And I literally said, I went, who wants to change my internet birthday? December 15th. No way. <laughs> and no way. they did it. And now, now I have two internet birthdays. You're actually two people. I know. <laughs> that is so exciting. cool. I'm, I'm enjoying this little mystery. <laughs> I, I have a secret. Nobody knows. <laughs> Uh, so this is a pretty good week for you, I'm guessing. You just got a Golden Globes nomination. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. So where were you when you found out? I know everyone always asks that question, but asleep. it is interesting to know. I, you I were asleep. asleep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you wake up to like a ton of texts and stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was so disoriented, though, you know, like my dog woke me up because he made a noise and then I took the dog for a walk and I was like, at my shoe came untied. I was walking the dog and tying my shoe and giving an interview to the L.A. Times. And That's funny. <laughs> very weird. But cool that, that people are finding and liking the show so quickly. I've been saying I, I'm always the last person to the party. And, really? Uh, and so it's always amazing to me when 24 hours after a show is aired, people are like, I saw the whole thing. What is your, for the Golden Globes, like, my question always is, like, does everyone that's up for an award prepare a speech or do you not prepare a speech and just wing it? I don't like, no. This is new to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a couple years ago, I was fortunate enough to be nominated for an Emmy and I didn't know what to do then, and so I didn't write anything because I uh-huh. was so sure I wasn't going to win, and I didn't. But I mm-hmm. knew I wasn't going to. And this is for House so, of Cards, right? Yeah, and, okay. and so and that was a total shock too. And so I I didn't, and then suddenly I, I thought maybe I should have. I I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? I have never <laughs> been up for a Golden Globe. <laughs> I would say write a speech. Never hurts. Know. Does that jinx it? Is that a weird thing to do? I mean, no, because oh. you're so. I, I don't know. Maybe it does. Well, I, I guess, like, whenever in doubt, I always just say, what what would, like, Beyonce do? And What would Beyonce do? I bet she always has a speech. But what would Sasha Fierce do? Mm, oh, way to bring it back. I like that. I had that's forgotten a, about Sasha Fierce version. for a while. <laughs> she would just dance. That's what if I'm you win, you just dance. That That's it. That's it. We, we did figured it, we it solved out. It. Solved it. <laughs> Boom. I, I predict either way you'll have a great time. Yeah, it, it'll be very cool. I, I just kind of, I want to, like, breathe the same air as Issa Rae. Is all. Don't we all? Don't you love her? I just sidebar, love her. I, I love her. I love that show. And I love that that show, Insecure, is such an homage to L.A. It's so beautifully yes. shot. You know, that's so true. It is. It, it's a little bit of a love letter to L.A. Yeah, yeah. I so love a good, that show. It's my it's favorite a really good show, show on television. Yeah. And, I mean, like, that show is doing, I think, a lot of the things that your show is doing, kind of, portraying women not as heroes not as villains but like Mm -hmm. as real people doing real things and like facing the challenges that we all face you know like like i am so glad that we're in this era of tv about women about black people that doesn't make them magical negroes or housewives that do it all with a smile or Mm -hmm. you know people who are these stereotypes and caricatures like So much of your character in your show feels so fully formed and layered. Thank you. Yeah. That's the goal, so thank you very much. This show, for those listening that have not uh, watched the show yet, how will we describe this show for listeners without giving all the stuff away? Right. So this is a show about a young mother and housewife in the 1950s. Um, She lives in New York on the Upper West Side. She has a perfect life. She'll be the very first person to tell you it's by her own design. And (laughs) one day, her perfect husband up and leaves her for his awful secretary. And And I can't stand him. I'm sorry. Just I cannot stand his character. (laughs) Oh, I know. But I feel for him. Michael takes it so personally. Really? (laughs) Well, wouldn't you? Everyone's like, God, Joel can. You know, Michael's like, oh. Um, uh, Yeah, so he up and leaves her, and through a series of both fortunate and unfortunate events, she ends up 
pursuing a new career in stand-up comedy. Yeah. And, like, this comes about her pursuing stand-up uh, after her husband who leaves her has tried to make it himself, and he's not that funny, and he's also stealing jokes. Yes, <laughs> Like, exactly. he literally is the worst. Um, yeah, fully the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a clip of the show uh, where you are doing that stand-up routine oh, in your, like, night clothes, drunk and out of it, and it's the first time everyone realizes that, like, damn, you have the range. You have the gift. I was a great wife. I was fun. I planned theme nights. I dressed in costumes. I gave him kids, a boy and a girl. And yes, our little girl is looking more and more like Winston Churchill every day, you know, with a big Yalta head, but that's not a reason to leave, right? I loved him. And I showed him I loved him. All that they say about Jewish girls in the bedroom, not true. There are French whores standing around the Moray district saying, did you hear what Mitch did to Joe's this and that? There is so much in there. Like, what I love about it, like, you're not just delivering the lines perfectly. You are doing the best physical presentation that the best stand-up comics do. Because, like, so much of comedy, I feel like, is performing with your body as well as, like, your voice. How hard was it for you to become that like you aren't a trained stand-up comic uh no. this is unlike roles you've done before yes how what was the prep like well thankfully we had a lot of prep before we shot the pilot more than gotcha. more than you normally get i think we we had a couple weeks and and so amy and dan and i sat down a lot and, we should say who they are uh yes like the creators writers directors they wear twelve thousand hats uh, <laughs> of our show and they're and, a married couple right Yes, they are. And we had a lot of time to sit down and, and I asked them 12 gazillion questions and, and they would give me 12 gazillion and a half answers. And then uh, and so by the time we performed that first one in the first episode, I, I was ready to put it out there. You know, we'd been working on it for such a long time. It, it felt it felt ready. Um, but also, I think Midge isn't really doing stand up at all mm. until much, much later in the season. Yeah. This is a woman who's who's fully having a breakdown. Her entire life has crumbled and everything she thought she knew is a lie. And that is is just a person. Uh, yeah. It's not it's not yet a stand up. And coupled with Amy's brilliant and hilarious writing, that that's what you get. Um, yeah. I feel like I had a way in as an actor and a and a person who comes from a more dramatic background, uh, and and I was fortunate enough to be able to take this parallel journey with Midge. Yeah, I got to learn the more technical sides of comedy together, and it was fun and petrifying and <laughs> and exhilarating all at the same time. And I mean, so like you mentioned, the writing that they're doing on this show, yeah. it is a lot of fast monologuing and just like a lot of dialogue, period. And you've spoken about how much dialogue y'all have in this show. Um, How hard was doing that? So, so hard. There's (laughs) there's never enough time to prep. There's never enough time. There's never enough coffee. Uh, It it truly involved actual mouth warm-ups pre every one of those speeches. I saw that. You said that you do like Shakespearean mouth warm-ups. Do one for me. Well, it's not. Shakespearean is a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, all that all that weird stuff that, that is going to sound even weirder over the radio than it would look in person, and it looks pretty weird. I in like person. weird. But, you know, you go, ba 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 baby bee bye bo boo ka 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 da 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 da
So it's the letters of the alphabet. Oh, B C D. B C D. Baby 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 boo. No, I can't. Hello, Mary Poppins. That's hard. It's hard, but it helps. Yeah. If you practice every day, you're, you're okay. going to be even better than you already are at this job. I'm going to I do promise. it. I promise. I'm going to practice. I can't I'm wait. Wait, try one more time just for me because it's fun. Bibbidi bobbidi. Wait, not bibbidi. Bubba baby. Bubba See, you can be it too. That's you can right. Be a stand up too. <laughs> a, a TV stand up. It's not the yeah. same thing. <laughs> I was reading that when you auditioned for the show, you had to basically deliver, like, deliver the stand up comedy monologue in front of an empty room, which is hard enough. Uh, but on top of that, you were like almost deathly ill during the audition. Like, how yeah, sick were you? I think Maybe me making some bad jokes has gotten slightly exaggerated through the course okay. of all this press. I was not knocking on death's door, but I felt terrible. Okay. Was it like the flu or what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I've been calling it the plague because that's what it felt like. <laughs> nice. you, you know how normally you have a flu or something and three or four days in, you, you begin to see the light. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 days later, I still could not get out of bed. Oh, that's not good. I mean, so, so sick. I was just a sweaty, gross, snotty mess. And, and I actually had to cancel my first uh, appointment because I was so sick oh, and wow. reschedule. But I was so scared that, that they were going to just move on. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, like I don't come from comedy. So nobody had any reason really to believe that mm-hmm. I could do this without seeing me do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I rallied way too soon. And, and oh, man, you know, like... <laughs> I, I had to take my shoes off at some point during this audition Why? because my feet were so sweaty. Ooh. I couldn't walk in them. <laughs> it was gross. <laughs> it was so, I've never been grosser. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and if I recall correctly, uh, the show's creators said that they couldn't tell. That, that's, they're being very good. <laughs> I mean, Amy did once or twice have to stop me to tell me to powder my face. There was a okay. lot of sweating happening. But some part of it was convincing. And, you know, not all that dissimilar from, from, from some that, of Midge's Yeah, stuff. from the scenes. Because, yeah. like, when she's on stage sometimes, it is like a little kind of breakdown-y. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, the show is set in 1958, if I recall correctly. And yes. y'all get the period piece nature of this down to... Gosh, a science. The wardrobes are on point. Um, like the, those Upper West Side apartments, like had me shook. I was like, I want to live there. I want me to too. live to there. Like it's so beautiful. Like one, did you get to keep the wardrobe? And <laughs> two, like how? What was the level of specificity and detail about making sure this thing totally looked and felt in 1958? Oh man. Well, I'm sure that I was insulated from a lot of it, but uh, but I but I know that we we had all the different departments working together to make sure that this both felt exactly true to 1958. And there's also a certain level of fantasy to this show. There's a little bit hmm. more color. Hmm. There's a musicality to to our world that is slightly heightened. Huh. Um, but, man, those those apartments are incredible. We actually That's shot... So nice. In a in two real apartments for the pilot okay. on 113th and Riverside, yeah, and they replicated them exactly wow. on our stage for the rest of the show. Wow! 
Um, yeah, it, the, the costumes are extraordinary. I, I haven't gotten to keep any of them yet. I they want... need to let you keep the costumes. Well, we have a season two. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> we, and we knew that before we finished the first, so. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, she's going to be repeating so some outfits, I think. Okay. Um, but one day I'm stealing every single one of those coats. As you should. Um, so when did you realize that you wanted to be an actress? Or did you? Did you fall into it? Did you say like Midge would have when you were like six, I'm doing this? Like, how did it happen? I kind of did. That's okay. something that Midge and I share in common. When okay. we, we can't not do anything 125%. Yeah. We're also both a little type A. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, without necessarily being able to say I wanted to do it all the time, I always mm-hmm. wanted to do it. I was very creative. I And yeah. I loved reading because I loved imagining worlds that were different from or bigger than mine. I really loved fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Um, And somehow that translated into wanting to act. I liked doing school plays. And then I think, you know, I I could just like kids say, I want to be a princess or I want to be a vet (laughs) or a doctor. I kind of went, I'm going to be an actress. But it wasn't until... I was in high school and people were deciding what they wanted to study in college. <laughs> yeah. And I realized that I had no other interests or qualifying skills that I wanted to be an actor. And you went to Tisch? I did. Yeah. At NYU, which sounds yes. like it must be like the set of fame. Like is everyone <laughs> just running around singing and dancing and flash mobbing? I, no, well, maybe some of the studios. My, Just say I, yes. Please tell we, me that it's like that because yes, I want to believe that. it's exactly like that. <laughs> wow, how did you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I studied at Strasbourg, which I don't know how much you know about Strasbourg, but we we were known for crying. Okay, um, what is Strasbourg for those who don't know? <laughs> you just you cry all the time. Um, no, it's it's a uh, it's one of the studios that, okay. that NYU. So there's NYU is the giant umbrella. Tisch is the larger arts umbrella, then there's the mm-hmm. drama program, and within the drama program, there are a bunch of studios, and, uh-huh. and drama students get split up into the studios, and you get assigned to a studio based on your audition, and uh, I got assigned to the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute. They assigned and you to the crying theater. They did. I don't know what that <laughs> says about me, but they they turn you inside out, they look at all your guts, and then they, they try to piece you back together again. <laughs> or they leave you on your own to piece yourself back together again. <laughs> but uh, but I learned I learned a ton. I really did. And I yeah. I loved I loved my time there. So coming out of the crying studio at NYU, did you mm-hmm. expect to be in this show that is really, really funny? N- no. Okay. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't were think anybody really expected this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So were you scared to do it? Like, was this a big departure from your previous work? Yes. Absolutely petrified. Mm. Every single minute. I'm, I'm still petrified. <laughs> really? Because uh, you look yes. flawless in the show. You look like you are just made of steel. Then the I'm a brilliant actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have never been so scared. Uh, but but that that's... Maybe that's not what everybody wants, but that that's what I want. I want – I've always wanted to do things – you hear actors say this all the time – to do things that scare me, to do things I've never done before, to stretch my muscles and and uh, and see if I can, I guess. And yeah. I, I loved this part and I felt like I had a way in. As I said, she, she doesn't start a comedian. She is a, she is a woman who is funnier than Rachel. 
yeah. thanks to Amy's brilliant writing. <laughs> but um, but she's a person, and she's a beautifully complex, fully realized woman. And yeah. and so I I was hoping I could find her. <laughs> you did, and I mean to be fair, you aren't. It's not all laughs. Like there is this one scene uh, where your character Midge kind of has this breakdown in front mm-hmm. of Susie who is her quote personal manager slash agent yes Susie's being tough on Midge and uh, Midge has had it just drop this doe-eyed Bambi thing right now I'm so sick of you acting all innocent oh I don't know how the world works because I'm a housewife and I wear four layers of petticoats it is tired and it is weak and you are not tired and you are not weak and if you want to be a comic you are going to have to grow the up right now I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to do lately. I'm I'm trying to be strong and independent, but I saw Joel the other night and he was with her and every time I think I can breathe again, I can't. And I'm I'm trying to get it right. I'm trying to figure it out. I I know the parties aren't gigs. I know I'm not really doing stand up. I don't want to be a second rate Nichols in May. I I'd never even heard of Nichols in May and I've got news for you. If you're going to be a personal manager, then sometimes you're going to have to deal with the personal and this is personal. All of this. And it's not... I love how you deliver that line. And, and this is personal. All of this. I'm like, that's my motto for life. It's all personal. <laughs> Especially when there's tears streaming down your face. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> Sometimes you're going to have to buy some Kleenex and let me cry and pat me on the back and say they're there. Okay, that sort of really felt like a, a sigh of relief in a way for mm-hmm. me there aren't very many moments like that in the show there really aren't any that that's the the only time midge really breaks down yeah including when her husband walks out mm-hmm. you know uh i love that scene that's that was good. a rare moment on our show where alex borstein who plays Susie, and i mm-hmm. got to just be and just chuck stuff at each other in a room not literally but you know (laughs) and Alex Borsch I mean like so I one the show starts and I was like oh my god I used to love her on Mad TV way back in the day and this is a totally a big departure from that show for her but what I like about the show is that the the love story at the heart of at least season one is between your character and her character and it is yeah. it, it is this story of this friendship between two women and this partnership between two women and it deals with it in a way that really speaks to the ups and downs of friendship and friendship yes. between women and I really admire that like you guys will cry and yell and scream and then hang out and work together and like mm-hmm. there are these highs and lows and your show is doing that shows like Insecure with Issa Rae have women friendships that are showing all of that I was gonna say and, that's my favorite part about Insecure that's mm. actually the part that spoke to me the most is the friendship between those two women and it was watching that show that made me realize how rare that is on TV uh. Yeah. To see a female friendship that is as complicated as they are. Yes. We're complicated beings and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and I and it and that nuance I think is something that only female creators, at least at this point in time, can really grasp in, in yeah. all of its yeah. all of its all of it. <laughs> yeah. And like I realized watching that scene and then hearing it back now, the beauty of displaying these multifaceted friendships between women is that you can access the full range of human emotion 
in a way that is not tied to someone's sexuality. Yes. And I think that's refreshing. Well, and, and I love that it's a budding friendship, too. The, yeah. These are women who, under ordinary circumstances, may never have met, mm-hmm. let alone become friends. And mm-hmm. not only do they come fr- become friends, but they they need each other. They need each other to survive. Um, they yeah. complete each other. I, Alex Borstein has coined the term womance. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> it's exactly right. That that's everything. That's it. it you know, in a, in a show with two bros becoming friends in a in a significant way, you call it a bromance. And this yeah. is this is a fully a realized romance. I love that. I do too. <laughs> that's and so speaking of this romance, like part of why it works so well is because you had someone like Amy Sherman Palladino making this show. People might know her from making the show Gilmore Girls. Why is that, you think? I mean, like, she has this really great way of writing, which you see in this show. It's really fast conversations, a lot of pop mm-hmm. culture references. Like, What makes her shows her shows and, and 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 makes you fit so well in this one? Well, everything you said, I mean, it is, it's, she's got a distinct fingerprint. And if you, if you look closely, you can always tell her shows are her shows. But I think, I think what, you know, this show feels so new. Our show feels so new. I don't know where it belongs in the cultural zeitgeist, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think a show like Gilmore Girls, and I think this is present in our show too, they're just hopeful mm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, that is which true. Which is funny because Amy is a self-proclaimed pessimist. But really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But, but she understands something about it because they – they're real people who are who are dealing with real stuff in ways that are not always beautiful, but you walk away feeling like everything's gonna be okay and and especially right now that the world is on fire you know <laughs> I, we need we need we need to laugh a little we need a little we need a little bit of hope a little bit of joy and I think without getting too cheese that's something that that these shows have in common, which is why they seem to speak to so many people, like you said, who who you wouldn't expect necessarily to enjoy them. Yeah. All right, time for a break. I'm talking with Golden Globe-nominated star of Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Rachel Brosnahan. Before this, Rachel had a supporting role on House of Cards. That got her an Emmy nomination. Uh, But House of Cards has been back in the news because its lead star, Kevin Spacey, has just left the show. And Rachel has thoughts about that. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from St. Louis Public Radio and PRX, presenting the podcast We Live Here, real talk about race and class that doesn't feel like homework. You'll hear investigations and stories of ordinary people. You can start by checking out an episode that has two best friends, one who is white and one who is not, getting quizzed about what it means to be an ally. Listen to We Live Here, where you get your podcasts. This show, the show itself is a comedy, but there are some moments that really are dramatic for me, and I'm thinking of one in particular. There is this scene that your character Midge does and her character's mother does. Y'all, y'all both are going to bed with your husbands. Midge waits for her husband to fall asleep. 
and then goes to the bathroom and takes off all of her makeup, mm-hmm. puts in her curlers, puts on her face mask, then goes to bed. But before she goes to bed after her husband's sleeping, she opens the curtains just enough so that the sunlight will hit her face first in the morning so she can get back up before he wakes up and have her full makeup on in bed so he never sees her Unmakeup'd. Yes, sir. Image's mom does the same thing, and it just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, wow, men walk through the world never even really being aware of, like, how much more stuff women have to deal with. Totally. And we're seeing that right now in a big way. Yeah. And, like, it was true in 1958 where this show was set. And it's really kind of still true today. Like, how does it feel to make a show that is about a different decade but feels very timely in regards to the way that... Our culture and our society treats women who are trying to be taken seriously. Yeah, it it feels important. It it feels especially important right now. It felt important while we were making it, but it's taken on a whole new meaning. Um, This is ultimately one show about one woman. But one of the coolest things about this show is that it's created, written, directed, produced, edited, like I said, 12 gazillion hats by this extraordinary woman, Amy Sherman Palladino, Mm -hmm. and her husband, Dan Palladino, who's an extraordinary man who loves extraordinary women about an extraordinary woman at a time when it wasn't okay for women to be extraordinary. And we have women in front of, behind the camera, and and we're always looking for more. Um, uh, it, It feels cool. It feels... Like, it shouldn't be so radical anymore to be telling a story about a woman who is amazing, um, yeah. who, who is like women that I know and love, but somehow haven't really seen on TV before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I also appreciate about this particular story that it's a slightly, it's a slightly different look at a woman reinventing herself in a period piece. This is a woman... Yeah who arguably isn't a feminist when you meet her. And she's the first person to tell you that. I think if you asked Midge if she was a feminist, she'd go, no, I don't burn my bras. (laughs) You know, um, and she she believes that women have a place. And and all this stuff that we're talking about, that scene you referenced where she gets up in the middle of the night and puts her makeup on, to us, a modern audience, that that feels like a burden. But to her, it's something that makes her feel good. Mm. It's something she genuinely enjoys. And and this isn't a woman who came out of the womb feeling like she didn't belong and wanted to change things and push against the walls and expectations that were set up for her. This is a woman who thrived in this environment. Mm. And to me, it's exciting to see a different kind of story about a woman that arguably is a feminist story, but who discovers that the world is not as narrow as she thought it was and that maybe some of the things she thought were true she has questions about and and uh and is noticing things that she never noticed before um noticing mm. a double standard between yeah. men and women and the way that women are treated and i'm really proud to be a part of this yeah it's so funny you say that the character is noticing things that were not noticed before and i immediately thought of this me too movement mm-hmm. and so many people men and women are noticing things that were always happening but just never talked about. And I think being almost aghast at how widespread this stuff is. Yeah. You know, like, besides just having this show speak to this moment, at least for me, what do you think your character 
in the show would make of this moment right now of of the Me Too movement. It's interesting. Midge says something in one one of the sort of mid later episodes that has always just ugh, like gotten me in the gut because it it's mm. hard for me to he- hear and to say as this character that I love something like this. But Susie tells her that. Um, that she's been learning things about the apartment building because she's been riding the elevator up and down and listening to people fighting and things. And she says, I think so-and-so grabbed so-and-so's ass. And Now, Mitch Susie says, is her her yes. almost manager, quasi-manager. Yes, becoming okay. her manager. And Susie so says, oh, um, I think so-and-so pinched so-and-so's ass. And Midge goes, well, I hope she did nothing to deserve that. Mm. I remember that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Midge, I think, is somebody who has a lot of learning to do in that department. And that is frustrating to me. I think it should be frustrating, but it represents a point of view that still exists. Mm-hmm. And I hope that throughout the course of our show, her perspective, and I, I assume because she will be faced with it personally, um, her perspective will be forced to change, her eyes will be opened more, but yeah. progress isn't linear sometimes. It's so almost never linear. Yeah. So I hope that for the women out there who are more like Midge, who mm. maybe share some of those more, I, I hate to use the word conservative, but I suppose that's still what that is, or more... Yeah, um, it's okay to use that word. Yeah. ...traditional views that, yeah. that way, that, that may lead them to believe things like that. I hope that they're also listening and that, that we are able to embrace their learning process, too, and encourage them to learn. Well, and that is what seems so rare these days. Like... People don't really want to learn from people that don't agree with them. At least it seems that way on the Internet. (laughs) And it's hard because it is frustrating when and even and I think this particular time, although so many times have echoed this, I suppose, is so polarizing. Mm -hmm. We're so polarized and and it does. And we're learning, I think, that sometimes people we love share these views that we find repugnant, you know, And so how how do you move through that? I don't know. I don't I don't have the answer, but we've got to listen we gotta find a way. more. Yeah. We, yeah. we we just have to we just have to listen better. Totally. We're doing a lot of talking and and not enough listening. It's what we all want, you know? It's what we all want. So you are, you know, thinking back about the Golden Globes. You're going to be at this award show that will also honor movies uh, at a time when the movie industry is reeling like many other industries over Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement and you were on House of Cards. Yeah. And we all know what happened to Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And he's gone. And now they're going to finish the show out with Robin Wright, who was the yes. female lead of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you like that? Is that the right way to approach these kind of things in light of men behaving badly and being removed? Ab- absolutely. I I was so happy to hear that they did that because one person who turns out to be terrible uh, should not be able to bring down something that has lifted so many people up. Robin Wright is incredible on House of Cards. Yes, she is. And it shouldn't, you know, I've been asked a lot in the press, which has really bothered me. People have asked me how I feel now that the show's reputation is tarnished. It shouldn't be tarnished. It shouldn't be tarnished. There are so many talented people brilliant people involved with that show who have made it what it is. And I think they absolutely did the right thing. 
um, by removing Kevin. And I'm so glad that they chose in that moment to lift up an extraordinary woman. That, that to me, feels like a part of the solution. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we sh- I, something that's been interesting doing press for Maisel has been that obviously House of Cards is what most people knew me from. And, mm-hmm. and I get asked in almost every interview to comment on, on the show, the Kevin situation. And what happens is every time I talk about it, it either becomes the headline of the article Mm. or it becomes the only thing mm. <laughs> that is mentioned. Mm. And The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is either a sub-headline or not mentioned at all. That's happened more than once. Huh. And it feels like, you know... It's at, not at, fair. Well, not, it's not even that it's not fair. Just at what point do we stop letting <laughs> men dominate <sighs> the conversation about extraordinary women? Snaps. Snaps for that. Honestly, it, it's preaching. been... It's been one of the things that has been the most frustrating about this. I'm on a show that is also a part, one part, of a very multifaceted solution. As I said to you earlier, this is a show that is created, written, directed, and produced Mm -hmm. by an extraordinary woman and an extraordinary man about an extraordinary woman. This is a show that lifts women up, that highlights their battles, that employs them in front of and behind the camera. And so let's stop talking about these terrible men and mm-hmm. start talking about women who are creating exciting content, the the courage of the women who have come forward, mm. the fact that Robin is taking over this show and she deserves that. Yes, she does. It's been, we need to start having this conversation differently. Oh, totally. I mean, like in the same way, you know, like not everyone that has come forward in the Me Too movement has put their name out there. But right. in my mind, the conversation is only right when the women that have named themselves are as as known as the names of these awful men. Right. We should know them too. We should value yes. them too. You know, and, 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 and we have these conversations where we're constantly asking ourselves, well, when has someone like Kevin Spacey suffered enough? And like for me, the bigger, better question is when have these women been made whole? Right. When have they gotten back the lost wages, the lost time, the lost self-respect? That is the bigger question that yes. we're not asking right now. Well, conversations like this move that conversation forward, I think. So thank you for having it with me. Oh, my God. I'm happy to do it. You know, I, I've i asked all the questions on my list, but I have one more that I thought of while I was in the studio. Um, Midge is a real-life person yanked out of 1958, and you get to have brunch with her. Oh, God. What do you guys talk about? What's the first question you ask her? What are you dying to know from her if you could actually speak with her? Where she shops. <laughs> Honestly. Like, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to stop looking at her. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's probably my first question, the, okay. most, the most pressing and immediate. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you ask? I would just want to know from her perspective what her world is like. I feel that way about anybody who's pulled from another time. Yeah. What does the world look like to you? Yeah. Well, because it's funny because it's like we or a lot of parts of the culture would look back on a woman like her in 1958 and say, gosh, this woman is in many ways kind of oppressed. Like she is in a society that seemed more patriarchal than this one. And, you know, she she had to run about in a world that was really, really just ruled by men. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if she would see herself as in any way oppressed. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't know Certainly if she would Certainly not. not when we meet her. Yeah. Not when we meet her. I think, as I said, her eyes are opening. Mm. She's 
seeing things she hadn't seen before. I'm not sure that she has fully realized all of her thoughts or processed all her thoughts about that and about what that means to her or what the larger world implications of those thoughts are. But that's part of what her stand-up is. Her stand-up becomes an open forum for her. Yeah. Uh, that's where she says all of the things she's not allowed to say and not allowed to think. Um, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what her, how her stand-up evolves. Yeah, I am too. I hope that this interview magnifies the show even further because I really think folks should watch it. Thank and, you. And uh, all the best of luck on that Golden Globes red carpet. Oh my God. Don't trip, break a leg, whatever they <laughs> there say. Are no I don't know. There promises there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of klutzy. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. Thanks. Uh, and I hope that you and Issa Rae get to have a moment there. Oh my God. Oh, I just, I will try not to be a total <laughs> creep. <laughs> I bet she watches your show. I bet she does. Oh, my God. I love her so much. (laughs) Issa, if you're listening, we both love you so much. (laughs) I'm blushing because you can't see this. Hey, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a fun show. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. Bye. That was Rachel Brosnahan. She's up for a Golden Globe for her work in the Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. All eight episodes are on Amazon right now. And as someone who just watched the show, I will say, you're going to breeze right through it, listeners. Trust me. All right, that's it for us today. A reminder, if you like what you're hearing and you love public radio, and yes, for all of you on both counts, I'm sure, please give to your local NPR station at this link, donate.npr.org slash Sam. As you may know, there's a little competition going on between the podcast hosts of NPR over who can convince their listeners uh, to give more. Not even just give more, but more people to give. From what I hear, we have been in first place for a while, but I want to keep it that way. I trust our It's Been a Minute family to help us end this thing on top. I know we can do it. We have till the end of the month to give. Donate.npr.org slash Sam. With that, we're back in your feeds with a weekly wrap on Friday. Till then, be good to yourselves. Talk soon. Listener.